on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. All of a sudden, I had to grow up to be a man that can hold a woman's sexual lust while at the same time letting it roam and flow freely wherever it wants to go. It's a core pattern of patriarchy. This is where domination comes from. This is where all the gender inequality comes from, I believe, at the deepest point, that there is a certain sense of uh, actually, as a man, we have the feeling we have to live up to the women's sexuality. And if we cannot do that and we are programmed in the way that we have to suffice and gain it and do it and achieve it, and it's impossible. It's a wrong paradigm. It's a wrong belief sentence. No man is there to satisfy a woman. And that is, of course, liberating for a man, but it also means I don't have a claim on her. That's the other side of it. And that changes the game deeply. What does it mean to be a man today? The old archetypes of masculinity are dissolving, and the new ones are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Benjamin von Mendelssohn is a longtime resident of Tamera Peace Research Village in Portugal, which for the last five years has been the focus of a documentary I'm co-directing titled Love School. Benjamin is co-leader of the Global Love School, as well as the director of the Grace Foundation, which aims to heal our collective relationship to money. I first met Benjamin actually in my own kitchen, back when a friend asked on his behalf for a place to stay during a stop on his North American tour. At the time, I didn't know much about Tamara, though we said hello and I continued on with my day. It was a year later in 2014 when I encountered Benjamin again at the Finhorn community in Scotland for the New Stories Summit. He was attending as a speaker along with a few other Tamarans from his community. And it was then that I recognized they were carrying an entirely different field of being. I was invited to Tamara to make a short film about their research in healing love and sexuality. And in 2015, after my marriage ended, I knew it was time to visit. That journey began a love story with the community and a deepening relationship with Benjamin, who I am now grateful to call a friend and mentor. In this episode, we discuss his first experiences coming to Tamara, what he had to unlearn as a man, and why truth in love is the foundation of a healed culture. Welcome, Benjamin. Hello, hello. Hmm. Would you be willing to first give us a, just a sense of where you are in this moment? You mean physically or innerly? Hmm, maybe both. <laughs> okay, physically, I am in Tamera in a house, Casa Maneva, dedicated to the healing of money, the Grace Foundation. And it is uh, dark by now. Uh, it was a wintry, surprisingly cold day for the south of Portugal. And Tamera is in winter season. So that means we are diving into our inner research. And me personally, I feel I am still not fully returned back to Tamara. Because sometimes when you are gone for Tamara and I was in Costa Rica for two weeks, 
And sometimes when you get back to Tamara and it is such a complex happening of what we are trying to do and what we are actually doing that it does feel like hitting the road running, hitting the ground running. So I'm still a little bit with that. That's an easy description. I would love for you to share a little bit about what Tamara is. Mm. <laughs> and perhaps, you know, there might be something that they could read on the website. But I wonder if, you know, you would offer your current understanding as someone who's been at Tamara now for many years. Uh, what is it? What does it become to you and, and the work that they do? Yeah, the real question is, what is it becoming? <laughs> it has become something and we keep readjusting and I mean, the basic idea, I need to name it once that it makes sense, is to create a micro society which is based 100% on trust. All the structures are structures of love and sharing, which is a utopia. <laughs> and in a way, um, yeah, we do strive to realize that utopia with a background idea that this is not just an island of happiness or bliss for a small group, but actually a small group creating such a cultural model will have a global impact immediately. If, it, if the model grounds deeply enough in transforming the core inner human structures. Now, I would say that Tamara in this sense is a place to research the collective trauma of humanity and actually almost like an acupuncture therapy, heal it in certain spots, in certain people in certain moments. So far in our experience in research, we keep getting the confirmation that the core trauma for most people lies in the area of love, sexuality, family bonding, trust. That's like one whole area. And the other area, which is as intense, is what was formerly called religion. Nowadays, many times referred to as spirituality. I just say, uh, our relation and connection to the powers that brought us into being. Understanding them is one part, but also being at peace with the other reality and having a trustful relation to what we call the sacred uh, realm or the entities that are not material and all that. Yeah, and the most fascinating thing, which is, which I love Tamara for, but which also makes it sometimes um, a little exhausting, <laughs> is that we keep reinventing ourselves. We keep staying in the inquiry. And this is beautiful. If I look at it from afar and from a researcher's perspective, and sometimes living here, it is a lot, which is really important in the time we live. So I am fully behind it. I just say sometimes... This is a lot of demand on the individual to overcome the individual. <laughs> mm, thank you. I'm also curious to hear how you hold the relation between the genders. Like I understand that, that this maybe healing a historical war between maybe men and women or the masculine and feminine, like how is that shown up in the, maybe the foundations of Tamara? Uh, and how has it lived today? I mean, in a way, healing the relation between the genders is like a big cornerstone of the foundation. And that is not, I mean, as you know, not just by choice, but by necessity. If we want to create a functioning community and if we want to create a project that actually thrives and does not 
implode through the normal conflicts that any group of people has as soon as you are more than one <laughs> and you have it in yourself as well. <laughs> anyway, these kind of conflicts, if you want to deal with them, you need to deal with love and sexuality in a healing way. And how it has, has been unfolding is for sure right now, there, um, there are waves of very explorative and edge work but right now the question is also with the liberty we have gained in love and sexuality wants to find uh, structures, wants to anchor in community. I mean, I myself, I have five children with three different women, all living in Tamara. I mean, this calls not just for a little bit of appeasement and I'm okay with a certain level of polyamory, but actually a foundational recheck how do we live and how can we recreate more tribal or community structures? And this is very real right now. And it's an inquiry because it's also the third generation being born into the project, which is kind of exciting. But it does mean that um, we have to create structures where they do not have to repeat uh, the same therapy, the same self-healing that we have undergone to this point. When you came to Tamara a number of years ago, I'm curious to know what was confronting to you mm-hmm. as a man in particular mm-hmm. by stepping now into a, you know, a field of free love uh, with a partner, with a young child, and your journey as a man. The correction I always have to do, I also have to do it now. I did not step into a field of free love. I stepped into a field where people tried and keep trying to free love. For me, this is super important because some, many times we associate with free love, promiscuity and the liberty to have more than one central sexual partner, which is beautiful. But really, free love as we hold it is love free of fear. And in many people, this includes the fear of bonding, the fear of really deepening with one person, the fear of risking intimacy. So free love also includes all of that. And that's I just, that is really important to me. And nevertheless, when I came to Tamara, I was confronted with a community, actually a culture where you have no um, right or demand for your partner's attention in any way, also not in an erotic way. And that means not that after, oh, now we are together and now, oh, I would like to have uh, uh, sex with you. And this is how it works when you're a couple. I mean, this is kind of the deal you make. You're accessible to each other, (laughs) more or less. Um, This just does not work. That means to begin with, uh, I I was with a one-year-old child and my partner. And that means uh, basically you have to restart, which you have to in a spiritual path anyway, but in a way get to know each other every day anew. And also uh, stay in the interest and in the flirt and in the perception for the other. You know, when sometimes when after a few years of living together as a couple, um, you kind of know each other. And this, I mean, this is, it happens to everybody. I mean, this, we think the people, we know the people around ourselves. We think we know ourselves, but it keeps changing. We are in an emerging universe. So this is always an illusion. But when you enter the area of free sexuality, all of a sudden it's not a given thing that you own anymore, the woman. But actually you have to reinvest. Like, you know, 
first time you met her and you were enamored and um they call it new relationship energy yeah in, in yeah. polyamory falling in love butterflies and all of that and you do all kinds of things i mean you're such a good listener you show the best parts of yourself then in a so-called stable relationship you this just decreases usually over the years and this does not work i mean basically you stay on with your real interest your real attractions your real uh, from both sides and that confronted me definitely um that there was no false security there was only the safety of the authentic and real contact and not oh we liked each other yesterday so there's a safety that you like me today and will make the little gestures and things that confirm me that i'm okay and we still have ongoing deep commitments and friendships but not on that um yeah not on that security level That's the one thing, but there was one other thing that I want to mention before you come in with a new question. That is, uh, we also went into the classic of moving into a field uh, where love is liberated, or sexuality is liberated, or moving into liberation. And that is that usually the man, and also me when I came, liked that a lot. All of a sudden, I was allowed to look at this woman, to flirt, and actually to go into contact with many women. And the thing is, and that I make it only very short, but because it's such a reoccurring pattern, I want to name it. And the, and the woman is scared and it is domesticated. People who know sex at dawn know the data, why women are uh, believe that they are monogamous by nature, whereas men believe something else. These are all deeply entrenched patriarchal patterns. So I was confronted after one year when my partner started to understand there is really no contempt for me as a woman, if I follow my sexual lust and interest. I was confronted with the totally new scenery. I was not negotiating my freedom. All of a sudden, I had to grow up to be a man that can hold a woman's sexual lust while at the same time letting it roam and flow freely wherever it wants to go. It's a core pattern of patriarchy. This is where domination comes from. This is where all the gender inequality comes from, I believe, at the deepest point, that there is a certain sense of uh, actually, as a man, we have the feeling we have to live up to the women's sexuality. And if we cannot do that and we are programmed in the way that we have to suffice and gain it and do it and achieve it, and it's impossible. It's a wrong paradigm it's a wrong belief sentence no man is there to satisfy a woman and that is of course liberating for a man but it also means i don't have a claim on her that's the other side of it and that changes the game deeply and basically i can say in the last 21 years i try to reconnect to the source that is of course interconnected with all life and still independent enough that I do not rely on the woman's attention to feel myself as being okay in this world. And this has to do with childhood traumata, but they are so collective that I would almost call them historical because we all deal with them to different degrees of feeling the neglect, the neglect or the abandonment in some place in our childhood. And we keep bringing it into our partners, uh, relationships, 
And this is why we are never able to have a true partnership with two independent, autonomous individuals that voluntarily and continuously invest in each other and are interested in each other and support each other. Yeah. I wonder if this is connected to what I've understood as this almost like core research uh, or even mythology around this idea of the sun man. Mm. I would love for you to maybe to illuminate that, whether concept or that understanding within this context of, you know, again, like saying, you know, why would a man look to a woman for sort of core validation? Like what is it in their inner structures um, and conditioning Mm. that in a way I feel has, has culminated in this body of research that I, at least I've experienced in different ways at Tamara around this understanding of the sun man. Yeah, in a way, I would take the individual, my track of it, or a, a man's track, but I also then want to look into the how deeply uh, historic these structures are. But at, to begin with, I mean, I just mentioned it shortly, but we all, uh, I say all, actually, I believe everybody has wounding in childhood. I mean, there might be some indigenous tribes somewhere that live in a protected way, that they do not have the classic childhood uh, traumata of being abandoned or actually many times in the area of sexuality to uh, be shamed for when Eros wakes up. And our core bonding, I mean, all of us, men, women, and all other genders, we come out of, we are born by a mother. So there is a core relation to the feminine for everybody. And at the same time, when we um, explore our uh, erotic and sexual identity, a lot of that goes with, of course, parent of the same sex. And there's a core bonding with a parent of the opposite sex, namely for us men, with the woman, the mother. And with the trauma we have in there of not being enough, which is a classical, uh, what is it called in... in the Greek mythology, Oedipus. What is it called in English? Oh, Oedip- yeah, Oedip- Oedipus, or the Oedipal Oedipus. complex. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oedipal. I mean, this is a structure that is deeply embedded uh, in our psyche, in our collective psyche. And um, it plays out usually if we do not have a moment where we consciously and in a loving way um, get initiated to become independent man, meaning learning to say, yes, there is a feminine. Yes, there is a mother that brought me forth. Yes, in the first year, I was totally dependent on her all the way to food. And yes, now I am, a, let's say, an adolescent man, and I make that step of a positive severance to say, like, look, thank you, mother. Now I go into the world. And usually there are so many psychological patterns around that... Um, not making that step in our society, there is no ceremony for that. There's even little awareness for that. And usually what we bring along is a codependence pattern. It's like a mother being scared when the son grows up, awakened sexually. There is a sense for most, in most families, a sense of loss when the children grow up and go out and be their own. And there is a sense of wanting to hold back and then usually we learn to please in the existential fear of losing that security of the mother. We either get aggressive and sever in a non-loving way or we rebel or we, or we try all of our life to keep pleasing the feminine. 
because we know it's the most important. It's our source of life. So if we do not have a clear transition into adulthood, it, it stays like that. And it plays out over and again. By the way, that's also something I was confronted with when I came to Tamara, that I have learned so much to be not a macho and not a chauvy and not to be, to be always nice and understanding and listening. And many times uh, in the patterns with my mother, but also then ongoing with patterns with women, I did that, but on the cost of actually being myself and being true to my own energy. Uh, and when the errors woke up, it, it was a strive to go into the world, to explore, to find others. And this is one of the patterns that I really had to get rid of and find out how much uh, frustration is underneath this pleaser, this constant need to please the other. And actually frustration and also aggression and also then at a later point, sadness. Sadness of not being in the core um, allowed to be who I am. And really this is not a, a specific uh, family critique because this is by now a basic pattern of our society. This is actually the search for the sacred masculine is to regain not the dominant and violent structures that men have displayed for thousands of years and that we have um, in a way drunk in with the mother's milk, but actually come back to the... Um, core of the polarity what does it mean to be a man in a life loving life serving um, women protecting children caretaking i mean uh, our image of caretaking has become so much attached to the feminine that many of us men actually have to relearn how much we, of, we naturally want to take care of life of others there's one point where I feel in our cultural, uh, uh, cultural history, um, there is also the reflection of that because all the, before patriarchy set on, there were all these religions of the great mother. And there was not a partnership between the human beings and the great mother or even equal gods. It was the great mother of all life. So in a way, patriarchy is a very misled attempt to emancipate towards the divine feminine. It's just that we did it in a really terrible way. I mean, let's, I think we will agree on that, that what came from it. But on a, a collective level, there was the great goddess and there was no equivalent. So I feel the punishing god in monotheism is almost like a rebellion against that. And we carry that on our personal biography with our mother, and we carry that in our collective biography with the great mother. Hmm. Thank you. There's so much in there. It's very rich. You know, what comes to me first is in the book, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, um, yeah. sort of the, you know, one of the famous archetypal books that talks about boy psychology, uh, particularly around the hero. And uh, hmm. what the hero fears most is to be overwhelmed by the feminine. Uh, to be overwhelmed. And and I hear in what you're saying as well, this kind of parallel, right? In that this kind of, the fear manifesting as kind of a war against the feminine or like a deep existential fear um, that manifests itself as, uh, you know, fear of the great mother. And so the boy hero wishes to essentially build, you know, the the citadel of technology and civilization almost as a way of like 
beating back, you know, the overwhelming exactly. force of the mother. Yeah, and how, in a sense, of course, that's a war that would, you know, the boy hero would never win. And in some sense, or I guess in the rite of passage that most, you know, intact cultures would do, particularly for boys at that age, like you say, would create an, a ritual severance from that understanding of the mother to come to this place, I think, of like, in a way, hit their own existential, you know, threshold of death, right, to the confrontation that, oh, you know, she will win. Like, she will win. Like, but that's not something to fear. I guess that's maybe where the, the pivot happens, right? That it's like, oh, she will win, and that's how life continues. And so, in a way, it's a very grief kind of, you know, grief-soaked, you know, re- recognition, but a really beautiful way of shifting, I think, into what you're saying of this stewardship or guardianship and, you know, protector and, you know, all these things. And so, without the rites of passage anymore in so many, you know, modern cultures— all that's left is this sort of unconscious war, you know, and domination against the feminine. And so anyway, I wanted yeah. to highlight that piece. Yeah. And to say, you know, this other aspect around, which are the caretaking, you know, which I, I wanted to touch on. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll go a little bit later on that piece. Yeah. But I feel like I want to, I want to bring it into a personal example um, for myself and maybe hear what your take is. I remember years ago when I was in a relationship and uh, I, I kept coming up against this threshold or this wall of a dynamic that would show up in our relationship where I would, I would just get so angry. <laughs> I would just hit this white hot rage because of a dramatic mm. you know, thing that where, in, in this case with the woman, she, just, she wouldn't decide on what she wanted in this case. And in some ways it sounds a bit banal. You know, I'd say, hey, where do you want to eat for dinner? And you'd say, well, you know, how about this? Well, no, I don't want that. Okay, well, what about this? No, I don't want that either. And this kind of like constantly not being able to decide somehow triggered in me eventually like such a white hot rage. And I couldn't figure it out. I was like, where is this coming from? Like, how does this even happen? And I remember I came to you actually, this was in Oakland, uh, California. And I actually said, you know, hey, Benjamin, you know, I'm coming up against this thing, this pattern. I'm not actually sure what, what's happening. And uh, you told me pretty much right away, you said, oh, that's a problem with your masculine." <laughs> and uh and i was like what and i was actually i had just started reading iron john um mm-hmm. you know the book by robert Bly and the rest and what he talks about actually in this this passage which i think also showed up in a bit what you're saying that for men that or for the boy heroes still trying to you know operate under that adolescent psychology is that on the one hand they wish to champion on behalf of the mother that's one mm-hmm. side of it you know, to, to solve all her pain, you know, because they're so deeply, of course, you know, bound to her and, and in a loving way too, often. And that when they realize that they can't actually solve her pain, there's a deep feeling of failure that kicks in mm. for a lot of men. Mm. And then on the other hand, this is what Bly talks about in Iron John. On the other hand, there is also this recognition that because there's this almost like abandonment or, or or dismissal of the masculine qualities of um you know because looking out and only seeing mayhem and violence and all the rest so many of these boy heroes right are like oh i don't want to be that you know forget that i'm not like other men and so there's another recognition that comes is one they failed the mother to solve you know to save her from her own pain and two they failed at being a man because they dismissed and disavowed all of you know of masculinity in themselves even, and so it's a double failure. That's what he mm. says in the book, and I feel that's where the anger was coming from. It was this like yep. it was this shame of the failure, 
And I, maybe I wish to, to ask you one about that part and also something you shared to me in an interview separately for the film, Love School, where you talked about this idea that, you know, at a certain point recognizing I cannot satisfy the woman, you know, in this case, you know, whether mm-hmm. erotically or, or to save her. And that in some sense, that's the birth of a different kind of solidarity with other men. Uh, yeah. And that's the piece I'm curious for you to speak on now of how does that lead to a solidarity that's so fundamentally different than the competitive dominant, mm. you know, aspects of masculinity that we see in the culture at large. Uh, it's interesting because in the way you speak it now, it's almost, it's already in there. Uh, if you realize uh, not from a sense of failure, but more from understanding the workings of the universe and life, that there is no individual man meant to satisfy all the needs and desires of a goddess, be it in heaven <laughs> or your partner. If you re- really start to realize that, you will uh, start to not only um, allow other aspects, other masculine aspects to enter her life, but you will actually understand, I need it. Otherwise, I will keep pretending to be someone who I am not. And the result of that is the rage you, desc- uh, you described. There's such a rage against not living my life and pretending to be someone for you that I'm not. It is bound to break, to explode at a certain point. And when I start to see like, okay, these other men are actually parts as I am looking for different aspects of the feminine. And really this is even true for monogamous relationships. Still, I am looking for different aspects of life. As truly as I am a complex, evolving being, I will look for different aspects and not just for one. And so if you start seeing that uh, and actually welcome that into your life, because you don't have to be everything, what a relief. You know what man globally would feel like with this realization? You know what kind of like sigh would go through the collective? Billion man would go like, wow, I don't have to be all that. I can actually be what I am and who I am. And actually there is a a good use. There is a need. There is, I have the right place in creation. And I give that to the woman, the women, the the other man of what is my gift. What a relief. And that brings in also in certain points, I see that women that I'm connected to they need something that is not me. And now me not having to be that freely can say like, wow, actually this man has so much of that. Or this woman. I mean, there are so many aspects that we want to call in to realize our human potential. And this leads to a very different um, solidarity because I start, um, it's opposite. From competition, you see like how you complement each other also in the most intimate areas of life. Because there might be that you fall totally in love with a woman on a soul level, but for some interesting reasons, your program of what you love in a physical sense does not play fully together. So now you have to make a choice. I go for that soul love or mm -mm -mm, or you find an image of a culture where actually this love um, is meant to serve life. It is meant to be. And at the same time, we each have our freedom to look what other aspects want to be realized 
in another context, with other people in other contexts. Yeah, it's a total turnaround. Beautiful. How do you see then the intelligence of attraction? Right, because, you know, in a culture where essentially I would say there's a fundamental sense of scarcity, right, around intimacy, mm. around mm. contact, and that creates a really fear-based culture, of course, where, you know, many people would report the idea of their partner or whoever connecting with someone else is so devastating, right, because it immediately triggers this sense of not enoughness. Oh, if they want someone else, I'm not enough. And so I feel like there's something in, like, rather than shaming attraction, which is what so happens, or repressing it, right, which happens in this culture so deeply, what is a different way of seeing the intelligence of attraction? Like, what's it actually trying to point to, maybe, if we had the right structures that could support it? That is so beautiful. I, ne I never heard these words so closely together. Intelligence of attraction, I really like it. Um, and, of course, it's, it goes very much to the foundations of how do we actually view life. And in the understanding that it's a hostile world that we have to survive in, that's one very, I mean, now make it stereotypical mode now. And the other one is opposite is like, well, actually life is guiding towards healing and towards mm -hmm. love always. So attractions that I have, have always some meaning. And when I am, um, attracted over and again to a certain type of person that actually I know already it does not work out. I need to find out why I am attracted. There is some gift in it. And it might be just one moment or it might be a lifetime. It might be a friendship, a project. There are so many ways, uh, but you have to find out. And the trouble is that in our culture, usually we do not have the space and the trust to deeply listen and find out because there's so much shame and laws and regulations before we can even feel and hear and connect to the meaning of that attraction. Actually, I'm in that right now very much because, I mean, you know, I have a partner for more, for 20 years now. And it's, I can say in a very uh, romantic way, it's the love of my life. And at the same time, I fell in love quite deeply last year with another mm. woman. And actually, I am trying to figure out what is it really that we can give to each other now. So now there is not, we are allowed to find out. And then it's a soul journey to find out what specific quality is it that we are meant to support each other in. What, uh, in, what kind of growth are we meant to do? And right now, for example, with her, I, um, I have a second chance almost to, um, I feel she's a very, um, a woman that's very independent uh, and in a way she will not rely or depend on me. And therefore I have the freedom to go into contact, but I am not obliged. And I also don't have that false security that I mentioned before. But whenever we are in contact, there is a very deep sense of actually being listened to and being fully accepted of who I am, which is the nourishment that we can give to each other right now. There's a very basic acceptance, which is sometimes more difficult uh, to uh, bring into your partnership where you all know your faults and your patterns and you project them already. So there's a very foundational sense of acceptance. Wow. I'd love to hear, too, a little bit about the practicalities, too, of what solidarity looks like between men. And, 
you know, I almost, I almost offer a little bit short story myself how I experienced it. You know, a number of years ago, when I was in love school, but I, uh, it was at the end of the evening. There was a woman there who had had a bit of a crush on, you know, the whole time, and we never got to the point where uh, we explored erotically. And on the last night, there was a moment where, you know, it was sort of the last chance of of having a time before both of us departed from the love school. And we had um, a moment at the end where there literally we were on the path, you know, leading from the community center. And there was this question, really, uh, which I asked her. I said, hey, you know, I, I'd love to invite you back to, you know, where I'm staying and for just to explore what's what's present before we depart. And she wrestled it out in her decision and came to this conclusion that there was actually another man there who she felt the call to to explore with. And, and I could see in her even like the you know, the fear, can she say this? She's going to make, I'm going to feel bad. So she doesn't really want to tell me. And, you know, this kind of stuff was present. And when she said it, you know, I'll be truthful and say that definitely there was a piece in me that felt rejected, you know, um, oh, yeah. I'm not as good as this other man, you know, that whole story was there. And I was actually really appreciative that she stayed true to what was true to her. And mm. if she had said yes, you know, and we went off and then I could, pro- I would have likely felt a sense of, oh, wait, you don't really want to do this, do you? You know, so I'm glad she did. And, you know, we parted then and it was it was a beautiful kind of, you know, in its own way. And the next year, though, this is when I had an encounter with the man that she had chosen that night, actually, who was, you know, this very uh, uh, rugged, good looking German fellow. And, <laughs> you know, I, it was easy for me to create these stories of, oh, he's clearly, you know, a better lover or whatever it was. But he actually came up to me um, the year later and he, he just sort of, you know, one morning at the early days of the school and he walked up and he said, hey, like, you're Ian, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, you know, last year, uh, that woman, she chose me that night. And he knew he knew that, you know, she'd made the choice, I guess she shared with him. And he said it in a way, it wasn't, you know, ha ha, she chose me. Like, it wasn't a competitive, mm-hmm. you know, declaration at all. It was actually kind of a really, it felt tender, like a sincere kind of recognition of, hey, you know, she, she chose me last year. And uh, and he said, that must have been tough. And I said, it was, yeah. And that was it. You know, he didn't say, yeah, it shouldn't have happened. You know, he didn't say, you know, well, maybe best, better luck next time. He just acknowledged it. And, and it was such a beautiful, mm-hmm. just for me, a kind of example of this kind of extension of care, you know, which felt mm-hmm. I, I, like a deep solidarity, which I was like, what? And it kind of, you know, had its way with me for a time because I was really kind of, reprogrammed i felt by the willingness for the man just to extend you know a a kind of consideration in that way and so yeah i would love for you to share maybe a little much about how yeah what's behind that kind of understanding and how has that played out for you in terms of a culture of solidarity among men Hmm. i mean what i said before that there's a point where we need each other and we both put it into very personal stories now but there's also a much 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 larger sense of needing each other to heal this much more collective issue. And in a way, it sounds like this man really knew this place within himself where next time the other is chosen and not him. And in that place, instead of entering like, okay, now I made it and I will try to make it again, he actually tended to the wound in himself. And I, I was not present, but I imagine because he was tending to this wound in himself, he could speak to you like this and it didn't feel awkward, but it just felt natural. 
because it is natural that we are empathic living beings. It is not natural that we say, okay, if I win, it's all good. It's just, it's just, it's not our nature. <laughs> and so it, it's a very beautiful example. And there's a sense of um, solidarity um, when you participate in the much larger healing of love and not just fixing your own story and coming through yourself, but with maturing, you understand, well, I will never um, win in the end anyway. I will win this situation, win the next situation, win the next situation. And at the end, I'm surprised that I didn't arrive where I wanted to go because I've been in a, steered by a matrix of competition which dot, did not allow me. And like in this situation, also you, is this really the contact that is right right now? It could even go deeper. I mean, in a situation like this, it would be a beautiful situation if there's enough trust to find out what was the reason for the woman actually to choose him to also kind of like dismantle your idea of what did you say? Rugged German man, certainly uh, <laughs> yeah. the lover, like all the projections we have going and to actually find out what was it. And it might've been the right, uh, not the right. It, it doesn't matter if we are in solidarity, we can come much closer to the real points that matter and that are in have a potential of transforming in this situation. And in a way, I feel that this uh, larger sense of solidarity, of just like hearing your story, of hearing, I am a father, like hearing your story of the first year with your newborn son. I mean, now he's a year old, but his first year. Uh, I have a solidarity that is beyond me, Benjamin, have a child, and Ian has a child, so now we are in solidarity. But there's a much larger sense of like parents, fathers, growing up to become the man and passing on to their sons or their children a healed sense of masculinity. It is such a beauty, and we participate in that story together. And this understanding of co-participating in the larger story is for me the deepest sense of solidarity, because this goes beyond liking you in that moment or not. Because this is the other thing. Many times I will not like the man that the women choose over me. Haha, <laughs> surprise. Yeah. And for very many good reasons, but um, there is a deeper sense in participating and also understanding the other. When we speak of love in the end, love is the recognition or the empathic experience of the other in my own soul. And to do that, to have that depth of love, I need to know what does the other love. And to find that out, I have to give them a chance to really reveal what they love. And for that, um, I need the solidarity. And I need like almost like an unreserved solidarity in the moment I reveal myself and in the moment I allow the other to reveal himself, herself. Well, you know, you made me think of a, a deep, maybe a my understanding of a deep practice or, or a kind of core foundation of Tamara's field, of which it's been my perception, is um, of this understanding of the, the word and the practice of contact. Mm. And for me, what's been so profound about this is really to use it as a lens to see, you know, maybe let's talk about just a man, a man's capacity to even get clear about what he is feeling, you know, moment to moment, you know, truthfully, and his capacity to make contact with, you know, some of these examples, a woman, you know, in an encounter, but very obviously could also be 
contact with another man, contact with a child, with a tree, with an animal, that, that it's a real skillfulness, actually, particularly in a culture of, you know, masculinity, where so often, you know, we've been essentially numbed out of feeling, out of the capacity to feel deeply, what, what actually are we feeling, you know, make contact. And so, I mean, I'd love for you to maybe to speak a little bit further, if you can, because I feel in what you were explaining about, you know, solidarity and, and, you know, what does the other truly love, for me, are examples of one's capacity to be willing to make contact and to have the ability, like the skillfulness to do so. Mm. Funny, I will take a inter- uh, maybe a different angle into that because uh, I, I have children and uh, my oldest daughter is 22 years old. And at that time, I really wanted, it was a wish, a wish child. And I really wanted to have children really young. And if I look back now, I am, she's beautiful. She's good. She's beautiful. And I look at my own capacity to be in contact with a child and not be self-occupied all the time. And I can just say I was self-occupied most of the time. So the ability to make contact also requires the ability to step away from your own urges and interests and be truly interested and present for the other which is a skill that we have to learn because we, you mentioned it before, we are so scarcity uh, in, infused, <laughs> I don't know if you can say like, um, that we uh, automatically always look for our win in any situation. And contact requires the, possibility, the ability to say like, okay, this is me, here I am, I am good as I am, and I am interested in the other. Yeah. It needs, in a way, a deep anchoring, uh, own anchoring in life and the knowledge that I am good as I am. Because without self-acceptance, you will not go into real contact. You will look for confirmation and approval. So you need to go through a certain maturation of accepting who you are and what you have to give and what are the things you have to learn. Also, the humbleness. This is what I'm... What, either what I have to learn or what I want to learn or things that I am simply not. This is not me this lifetime. And in a way, this acceptance needs to set in as a starting point to really be in contact with the other. Beautiful. What would you say are the emerging masculine archetypes that you've perceived now? you know, coming from, you know, what was and, and what do you see now so deep in this research, you know, what's been emerging as these places have been healed and uncovered and explored? Mm. I mean, one emerging uh, quality we already uh, named, and that is stewardship. That is caretaking. A few years ago, my power sentence was, I am a man, therefore I care. And just on a very fundamental level because i am alive because i am part of that beauty i care and this is something which we deeply have to relearn you just named it our numbness there is another quality of actually adoring adoring the feminine like wanting to be good for the feminine now not from the pleaser but there's also a naturalness in wanting to be protective and the best you can be in face of the feminine. 
And that's something to regain also because it has been abused so much. It has been being the best has become such a competitive, as we just talked, matrix that it has been abused so much. But there's also a natural sense in it. I mean, that's not just masculine and feminine. This is like we want to be our best and we need spaces where this can be uh, unfold and evolve. There is something, when I think of regaining sacred masculinity, it is also some of the very cliche or stereotypical, more masculine qualities. Let's say strategic thinking. And this is really, sorry to be so stereotypical. I'm not saying men, women now. I'm saying masculine. And if I think of masculine, the expansion and the connection and the drive to explore the stars and the ongoing drive to explore more and more intricate mechanisms and understand them. Now, if I say that it's a basic masculine quality in all of us, uh, it has been used for the wrong thing in such a massive way that most of the time in our path of healing, we actually have to drop our intellect. We have to drop our thinking. We have to drop our uh, wonder of exploring outer space because all these qualities, they have always been abused. They have always been, expansion was colonialism. Outer space was like going out there and conquering more. But there is a natural sense of this expansion, which is beautiful and which is part of a, a natural polarity. Now, if I stay in that and when I say the masculine is the flame and the feminine is the vessel, then the flame has burned so much. Also, our intellect has burned so much because it was disconnected from our heart. Then now we are almost on the edge of dropping it. Uh, and we cannot. I mean, it's part of evolution. I mean, it's dolphins and human beings who have this neocortex for a reason, but to put it in the service of life. And there's something very deep to regain, I feel. And I, I say that to you, as I know you are a thinker. <laughs> uh, and the beauty of that, that uh, abstraction is not used to protect ourselves from feeling what we feel. But actually, abstraction is a beautiful function in the logic of life, even in the logic of love. Yeah, this is things we have to regain. You know, you made me think of something that uh, I believe it might have been Sabine Lichtenfels, uh, for those listening, the one of the co-founders of Tamara, who said during the love school one time, I think she might have been quoting another source, but she said, um, orientation comes from the feminine and action comes from the masculine, mm. something like that. And, mm. and I hear a little bit in that where you're saying that, you know, I think the dominant culture or the civilization project, you know, for so long feels like it's been lacking true orientation to what serves life. Yeah. And mm. so it's kind of off on this, you know, magical land called, or magical abstraction called civilization, which, you know, really is in mm. a sense a, a kind of, fantasy land hovering above its own consequence of the biosphere and, you know, mm. all of it. And so I feel like there's a, as you say, like rather than sort of disavow the whole, all those capacities, which built, you know, such a, you know, grandiose you know, oh, expression, it's re, how do we reclaim them and give them proper orientation? And I do think yeah. I'm really grateful to Tamara for what I feel has been in a way, like really reframing a lot of my understanding around life energy and, and its appropriate use, you know, and particularly for men that looking out and seeing a lot of the, I mean, the violence and the rape and the 
repression and all the rest that that so often is inflicted by men, I think a lot of the feminist response often has been a kind of, there's something wrong with men, right? That's the problem. And so we need to, you know, disavow, condition out, whatever it is to like stop these things from happening. But like you're saying, it, it feels like it's so much a part of, you know, what, what is, it is to be alive and this deep energy. And it, it's been kind of given the wrong channels in which to express. And that um, what I've seen in Tamara, and it's powerfully so, is having the right channels um, somehow liberates this energy to really be in such deep service. Mm. And, and I feel a sense mm. of such kind of, yeah, like whole or integration that I've experienced with a lot of the men there in particular, where, again, they don't feel like they don't carry so much shame, you know, or guilt around being a man, you know, that it's not like they're not living as an apology, which and as if that's the way to kind of appease, you know, again, the feminine one more time and say, you're right, men are terrible. I'll be a good man by, you know, basically apologizing all the time for being a man. So, yeah, I just want to name that as well, that I feel it's powerful to be in such a field as Tamara, where I feel it, it expresses such a unique um, place right now on the planet, you know, where these places have been given their proper channels and have been able to come in back into contact. And so I just, uh, if I had a hat, I'd take it off to you and uh, the mm-hmm. rest of mm-hmm. you there uh, at Tamara. Thank you, Ian. And I would love now, maybe is there anything we didn't touch on that you know, you'd love to finish with here on uh, our conversation? In a way, what you just named at the end, uh, how you phrased it, uh, also the need. We need our power to act right now in the right orientation. This is not just like something of self-realization. There is an urgent need on a global scale to take massive action that has the right orientation towards life. So in a way, I feel this is much more than a personal story. And it's in some spiritual traditions, they say that life here on earth is in the numbers, whatever, but it's mostly feminine and only partly masculine. Out in the stars, it's different, wherever they have that concept from. But what they say then is that makes uh, means that the masculine have to, has to be particularly strong, but not strong in domination but strong in groundedness, in clarity, and in commitment to serve life. For me, that is many times when I think of like honing my own feminine, my own masculine, I feel, yes, I need to actually nourish that strength. Otherwise, it gets drowned under, and it will never vanish. It will just be like a smoldering fire underneath that will break out at another point. And actually, right now, we need this energy. We need all the energy in the right balance to come back to uh, a culture that makes sense for everybody. Yeah. Beautiful. Maybe I'd love for you to just uh, offer a little bit around such a beautiful initiative that has grown from Tamara, uh, Defend the Sacred. Um, maybe you mm. could just say a word or two about that, how that came about and mm. you know, where it's at now. Mm. I mean, as I don't know exactly your, the people listening to your podcasts, but I assume many Americans, they are very aware of Standing Rock and uh, this moment when it was not against the government or against the pipeline, but for water and for life. And it is something that has been in, active, in the mouth of many activists for many years. But still, in the case of doubt, we always went into the protest mode and fighting the system. And that something happened there with uh, unwavering protection 
of the resources that belong to all of us. Water is sacred. It was so beautiful that it inspired us to actually take that on and say, this, we, we want to support that this is not just one regional resistance movement, but a global movement to put things right again, to, see, to understand what is sacred, how sacred is life, and to protect it again. And in the last years, we have been gathering activists, intermara um, activists, environmental activists, spiritual activists, pol politicians, wealth holders as well, and uh, say like, okay, what we need now is not just all the individual good projects, but we actually need, need an alliance which understands that this uh, re-sanctifying life on a global scale is all of our business. And we need to actually come together. And the big part in it is actually overcoming the idea of this is individually my project and this is the most important. But actually find a circle of powerful activists and powerful thought leaders and actually say our common thing is the most important. This alliance is the most important. Let's listen together where we put our energies to make a change. And for me, that's the most promising right now. There's so much potential for healing if um, indigenous leaders and philosophers, Western philosophers and money holders and people living in the gift and all of them coming together. There's so much potential for healing very deep lines of trauma in humanity. Mm. Yeah, and that's happening. And for me, that's the most important right now. And actually making sexuality part of the sacred i mean making it understanding that it is part of the sacred and a rather central part of the sacred because this is why we are on this planet uh, is a beautiful addition uh, of not just framing sacred as something out there and in nature and in religion but actually it's a very core of our being including our most vital drives to be alive maybe so yeah May it be so. Well, thank you, Benjamin. Really appreciated our time today. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for listening to today's Mythic Masculine podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave a comment. And if you'd like to support future episodes, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash ianmack. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash I-A-N-M-A-C-K to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.